Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to David Hughes. We're going to have an episode where we review a book rather than talk to an author of a book. Although David Hughes has of course written a wonderful series of books about the greatest films never made, greatest science fiction films never made. And he's also written books about Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. But today we're going to do a review of Meg Gardner and Michael Mann's Heat 2. If you are interested and you haven't had the opportunity already, you can also go back and listen to my interview with Meg Gardner a couple of episodes um, a couple of episodes ago, two or three episodes ago. Uh, but before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. narration i still remember little bits of uh um like david essex as the artilleryman and him showing him how much he does start a whole new world underground <laughs> yeah not poetry and rubbish science <laughs> <laughs> oh bit. my god seminal i know how did that become like i don't know there's there's some um, it's just some some stuff that's like pop culture that people sneer at now. And I know you're not like this. So I love to see that, that you among critics are, are very honest about your influences, be they, you know, from high or, or low culture kind of thing. But I do think there's this like massive snobbishness among, among critics sometimes where they won't necessarily acknowledge that the first time their, you know, bl blood was chilled or something was, was probably Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds and not James Wales as Frankenstein or, or, you know, Bella Lugosi as Dracula or something. It's like, come on, guys. We all know it was Salem's Lot, Michael Jackson's thriller, you know? Yeah. And Threads, you know, Threads, that's that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Way, I think, you know. I mean, my mum and dad were always really into the, um, the idea that we should, we, you know, it was like working class um, sort of autodidact kind of thing of like ragged trousered philanthropists. And when we got the video recorder, the first video they got out of the Shell Garage that was sort of renting the videos was the killing fields and it was like oh wow <laughs> you know, we're, we're 13 years old can we watch something a little bit more exciting it's like oh, a little man. bit not not just more exciting a little bit more um 
appropriate. You know? Age appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. And I, my dad yeah. was, no, no, it's really important you know about this. This is really, this is really, uh, you know, important that, that you. And it, I mean, he wasn't like self serious or anything like that. I mean, we'd go and t- he'd take me to Firefox as well, but. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. They just occasionally get stuck on the idea that we should watch something important today. Yeah. Oh, the ragged trousered philanthropist. I, I think about that often, actually. They, they just did a really nice graphic novel version of it. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've seen that, which is well worth picking up. It's absolutely gorgeous. No, and I... a real labor of love for someone, which is, uh, yeah, 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 worth, worth checking out. But um, yeah, I just love the idea of of a shell garage that has like Jaws 2, Porky's Revenge and the Killing Fields. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember it had Bl- Blind Fury with Rutger Howard. You remember? I, mean, oh, R- I don't Rutger... think I've ever seen that. Oh, I, 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 did, I watched it recently. I think it's quite a famous director as well. It's like Roger Donaldson or someone as a director. Right. Um, but I remember the tagline, which was like, as fast as a cheetah, uh, as fierce as a lion, as blind, blind as, as a bat. bat. <laughs> steps on the punchline there but yeah oh my god that's an all-timer yeah and that's, what... that sounds like it should have its tongue firmly in, in cheek but from oh that yeah period, you never know you're never sure whether you know that's just a bad copywriter you know it, it's fairly daft i mean it's not an out and out comedy but it knows it's really daft it's not right uh, you know um i mean wanted dead or alive was another one where they, they were just kind of selling him as this sort of like lead man and lead actor. And he didn't really ever fit in there. He was, you know, I mean, those, those films are sort of enjoyable in themselves, but he never, he never got out of the straight to video. Um, yeah. You know, bucket when it came to, you know, leading a movie. Yeah. He was pretty cool with that though. I think, I mean, he was, he was quite sort of um, comfortable with, with, with where he was in the sort of, you know, the movie star kind of pantheon, you know, he's always seemed very down to earth. I, I interviewed him a couple of times once on the set of Split Second. I oh, think. right. Was that any good? Um, I don't I don't know if Split Second was any good, but I mean, it was a really, you know, good value interview. Right. I do, I will, don't put this in the recording, but I do remember that... Um, while I was into, I was interviewing Kim Cattrall on the same set, and and uh, she was in her trailer, and I was wait, so- wait, 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 wait. And that's why neither of us are ever allowed back to Pinewood Studios again. Banned, and rightly so. I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't get a longer sentence, frankly. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, enough about uh, um, your your uh, dirty experiences. By the way, that's another thing. Actually, Rutger Hauer, um, his real lead performance was as a pint of Guinness in all those Guinness adverts. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'd totally forgotten about that. What was it about him that made them think, "Yep, it's an Irish brand. We definitely want Rutger Hauer to be our." Because he looked like a pint of Guinness. He had the yellow hair and the the black yeah. coat, and he was long and tall, pint shaped. Yeah, not pint sized, but but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and he damn, said, that's "I mean, he said it's it isn't easy being a dolphin." And then didn't explain it. <laughs> Everyone was like, what the fuck does oh, that mean? Man. What a present. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Incredible. Uh, Ridley Scott didn't direct those or something stupid, did he? That sounds like you could be right up his street. A massive brand like Guinness hiring. Yeah. Him yeah, you would, you would sort of think that, that. I mean, I remember it being, even at the time, people going, this is a really innovative sort of advertising yeah. uh, campaign because it's not explaining itself. And you've got to kind of go, it's not easy to be a dolphin because dolphins can't drink Guinness. Is that the is that what we're supposed to be drawing? Yeah. The conclusion we're supposed to be drawing. Um, well, you know, you're still talking about it, like however many years later that is, like 35 I guess, years later, that's pretty cool. I mean, that is the power of deep, deep advertising, isn't it? I still sometimes sing the Shaken Vac um, music around the house, even though I haven't heard that commercial for probably 40 years. It's like the Mancurian candidate, isn't it? If I say quick fit fitter, you'll probably be out of the house running down the street to murder yeah. the uh, the Indonesian prime minister or someone. Yeah, well, didn't um to all beef patties, lettuce, sauce, whatever it was, um, cheese, all in the sesame seed bun, didn't that become like a code word in that movie um, with, uh, gosh, who's the, uh, Dabney Coleman, and who was the young kid who was in that movie Cloak and Dagger? It's like an 80s movie with a real 
edge. It's kind of like one of those Hitchcockian kid thrillers, but actually has like real well, um, jaggedness real, to it, real jeopardy to mm. it. Yeah, and there was something about the code that the kid knew because he'd memorized that McDonald's ad or something like that. Maybe I've just made it up, but I'm sure it becomes like a key part of, again, like because the way that pop culture sort of seeps into to you so that you can't forget a certain sequence of words actually makes for the perfect password in a code situation, you know, because mm. your, your password is do the shake and vac and put the freshness back. You will never forget how to say or spell that or, you know, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool one. You know, yeah. Except of course you have to have a number and a bloody symbol in it as well. So that ruins that. But Bastards. I'm thinking of Equus as well, having um, uh, the, the, the young guy. Was it Colin? Not Colin Firth. Peter Firth. Peter Firth, yeah, jumping up and shouting, you know, rig, uh, uh, juicy fruit gum or something and and sort of doing a – I was doing an interview with someone and we we got onto that talking about that. And who was it? It was a guy who did the Velvet Underground and um, documentary and Carol. He did Carol as well. Todd Todd Haynes, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we, we started talking about – he was having some gum. And I went, ah, Wrigley's gum. I haven't seen that for a while. And yeah, remember, and started doing the song because I remembered it from Equus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's it again, you know, back to the, the sort of the, the high and low of pop culture. And, you know, in a funny sort of way, I guess, um, you know, doing a, uh, doing a genre movie – like a um, like a heat because I know we have to start talking about heat eventually um, is a little bit like your kind of I know obviously you know some some great great filmmakers Kubrick included have done like heist movies but it's almost like that, that those directors know that they are not necessarily slumming it to be down with the with the genre films and there's something great about a titan like Michael Mann or Scorsese doing a, a genre movie, isn't there? There's something very thrilling about that, particularly. Yeah, I think it. I think the thing as well is that a lot of these people don't. I think it's much better if it's someone who comes from genre as well, because I mean, Scorsese started off doing Boxcar Bertha, and Michael Mann, you know, he's he's you know made his bones in mainly in TV doing things Absolutely. like Crime Story and and uh, and Miami Vice, and and so there's genre. But, you know they're 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 not sort of sort of gliding in with uh, you know from from the upper ether of art cinema to to see what genre is like uh, you know Kenneth Branagh directing Thor they're um, they're kind of they're, they're they're already in the mud and they they're like yeah we we can do this but we now we have the resources to do it like in a way which is much grander yeah and not looking down on it either that's kind mm. of uh, that, that's what I'm thinking about the fact that they recognize that that you know cinema is kind of uh the, the genre obviously is is a huge part of cinema and not something that you can necessarily separate from the um you know from from the sort of the, the quote-unquote higher art that it's all kind of in a blend and and obviously you know when I kind of came up watching um you know the the Friday night horror movie with my mom or whatever you know in the Sunday afternoon film I didn't know whether these were um art movies or you know don't know if the old dark house is you know made by a, a great director because you're not really paying attention to that sort of stuff yet so you don't really know the difference between a, a German expressionist masterpiece and and a and a, an equivalent sort of American film from old Hollywood or something. It's just like, do you like it or don't you? And it's only later that you start to put those on sort of levels. And I think if you come in at, uh, that way, just as if you're a director who comes from, from genre, you don't necessarily see the difference between those. Um, you know, it's the same art form and what you're going for is, is you know, is it any good? Well, it's funny that uh, right early on in the conversation, you were saying, um, you know, James Whale, you use James Whale as an example of sort of like, uh, you know, a, a, a something that someone who's a bit snooty might sort of claim to be their first, mo you know, the first moment in the cinema. Um, whereas, uh, you know, that kind of old Frankenstein film, 
I grew up with those kinds of movies being on the television in the background of other movies as kind of look, <laughs> look how look how sort of crappy American culture is, or you yeah, know, look how throw, this is some throwaway stuff. Which uh, maybe old, as you get older, you think, ah, oh, no, it's more probably more an affectionate tribute. But I was reading it in that way. Yeah, yeah. like how like, far we've come because now we're we're, we're in a an 80s horror movie yeah, when now we're on, watching fright night yeah, on halloween <laughs> and they're watching this creaky old thing with boris karloff with his with his hands out and the bolts in his neck or whatever and yeah they are sort of you know the the context of that makes you think oh yeah they're kind of taking the piss out of this creaky old stuff but it's actually like oh my god this is the stuff that influenced me you know yeah, that's yeah. that's why i think i love um uh, stephen king's dance macabre because he just basically talks about all the stuff and he doesn't know as n- as none of us really did it was just what was on at the cinema that week i i was just as li- likely to go and see the wraith in 1986 as i was aliens you know and it's mm. only really when you get there and and you realize that one is sort of great and another one is something you buy on an arrow blu-ray ironically uh, you know sort of <laughs> Arrow 35 Blu-ray. years later <laughs> there are so many blu-rays at the moment they're coming out that are so beautifully packaged and you're like oh yeah let's get the box set and it's just like yeah. oh my god this stuff's a bit shit this would be in the bar- <laughs> bargain bucket at the supermarket you'd walk right past it you wouldn't you wouldn't give it a second glance well i've just uh i've just put out mazes and monsters <laughs> Uh, speaking oh, right. of creaky old rubbish, they're on, on a nice shiny Blu-ray now. This is my uh, special limited slipcase edition of Mazes and Monsters on my little boutique label, Plumeria. And so this so, is sort um, of like the Dungeons and Dragons kind of. Yeah, exactly. This is the, the, But it's the Dungeons and Dragons satanic panic kind of thing. So it's Tom Hanks' first leading role in basically um, 1982. And uh, yeah, it's basically a kid gets a little too deep into his game of Dungeons and Dragons and kind of, um, you know, uh, loses the, um, the, you know, the boundary between fantasy and reality blurs, but um, but they can't use Dungeons and Dragons. So it's called <laughs> Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> Which was- It's great. I have to send you, I have to send you a copy because it will be the nicest packaged rubbish that you've... <laughs> you've ever seen probably but i have a fondness for the for the movie because when i was into dungeons and dragons and movies there wasn't a lot going no. on so you know well, i was like 14 when it came out or whatever and it's like you would watch anything that had any kind I remember, of i got excited by he-man i, I as a kid i right. was like oh he-man that's kind of dungeons and dragons yeah was gosh, there wasn't a lot of it around so you had to take what you could get you know thank god for like conan but i was probably still a bit young to watch that then you know mm. Mm. have been allowed to see it at the cinema and video was just something that my rich friends had so you know it sounds like my mum watched mazes and monsters because she definitely had a satanic pa- you know i had to sort of hide my copies of white dwarf and and stuff oh my gosh yeah she was really because she's she was you know hardcore catholic and so she was like uh you know this isn't about god <laughs> you know these, yeah. these, god never invented any dragons and that's my irish accent right (laughs) (laughs) so let's yeah let's talk about heat too so what's your relationship with heat well yeah that's a good what's your sort of question well i mean i think my relationship with my my relationship with heat is um i remember you saying that you had watched it and thought i am you know it's perfectly okay and then you realized like on perhaps a second watch that you kind of were, were a bit blown away i actually kind of thought you know, it's a really, there are great, great things in it. Um, and obviously a lot of actors that I, that I really like. And um, the, there's, uh, but, but I never really had that love for it that people do. And, and every time I go back and sort of try to see what, why other people think it's such a giant, I, I feel like it's one of those films that has become sort of epic um, probably because of the size of its performances and its running time and its general sort of look, it's got that massive screen feel. Mm. But and and a, you know a great great cast and I guess you know the the, the Departed is another film that I, I I feel a little bit like this. But I just I can never it can never quite get, I can never quite get there. So I did feel a little bit like I loved it enough to and I loved Tom Noonan. I mean, anything that Tom Noonan is, I think he's just one of the, you know, the the, the greatest things in in screen. And so I, I would kind of, that's always been my sort of 
the highlight of that film for me. Every time I think about going back to watch it, I always think, oh yeah, I'm going to see it. Obviously I know what I'm going to see, but the bit that I really love is, is, is Tom Noonan, who is really one of the, one of the greats. Um, and I, I've always um, been a little bit of a Michael Mann skeptic. And so when he makes a film that isn't so great, like Public Enemies or like, you know, Ali or whatever, you know, even the ones that, that other people love, I'm always a bit like, ah, oh, you know, the Miami Vice movie. I know it has its fans, but I just I can't, can't, you know, get uh, get into it. Um, so he's never really been that uh, that that strong a, a, a film for me, even though I know it's great. It's like great in a way that The Departed is great, not in the way that, you know, James Wales Frankenstein is great. No, I don't mean that. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? So I, I'm not yeah. quite there with it. And so... And yet, when I heard that Heat 2 was coming out, the first thing that annoyed me is that the 2 wasn't in the same font as Heat. And I thought, God, if you can't get that right, how are you going to, you know? And also, you know, there, there aren't that many characters left alive at the end of Heat that would make the sequel interesting. So mm. I thought all that. And then I thought, leave it alone, you know, like, mm. you, like you did when you, when you interviewed Meg Gardner. You sort of admitted the same thing. And then I started reading it and... So then I had to, you know, I had to get it anyway, because you've got to see what, what's what's going on. And then and there's obviously there's a big fashion for belated sequels at the moment. Um, and some of them have worked great. You know, there's been some fantastic ones. I mean, th this isn't recent, but my God, Psycho 2. How, how is that so good? How mm. that's as perfect a, a belated sequel as you could ever hope to see. So I'm always hopeful about them because of Psycho 2. You know, it's like incredible. Um, so, um, when I, and then I started reading it, I didn't know Meg Gardner from a hole in the ground, you know, and I thought, oh my God, this voice, you know, the voice feels like I'm watching a movie already. And when, and when they did a recap, open with a recap of what happened in Heat, and it was written so well, it was such a perfect precie of the sort of basically the important stuff and leaving out the stuff that wasn't so important. I thought, holy shit, this might actually be good. I better like a bit you know I better put my prejudices aside a bit and and then man I just thought it was great I mean I read it in a week primarily because you were you know the pressure was on to <laughs> yeah exactly while it was still current I was cracking but then the I realized you know there's a reason why I've read it in a week which is very very fast for me is actually because I can't stop going back to it you know mm -hmm. so um yeah, very interesting. And and of course, when I realized that they got around the fact that that Neil, you know, didn't survive um, the film uh, by doing a flashback beforehand, you have that instant sort of prequel feel as with, you know, Better Call Saul. Well, you know that they, these people survive. So because, you, you know, it, it takes away a little of the jeopardy, but the writing is so sharp and precise and urgent. When you read a car chase on a page and it reads like you're watching it in a movie, it's like something else. And that can happen in scripts. Now, I haven't, I, to my knowledge, read a Michael Mann script of a script that Michael Mann has, has made, but I can imagine that, you know, the way that it feels to, to do that, it has that same kind of urgency and immediacy that the, that the book has. So I think, you know, um, Meg Gardner with, Michael's kind of guidance however that relationship worked has absolutely um has created something that I is, is I guess what it's what get people get from reading Jack Reacher novels mm. you know that sort of uh that that urgency of of action and stuff and and the added thrill of like Kelso turning up of course and you know there there being sort of flashbacks to you didn't ask me what I thought of the book, actually, but you just asked me what I thought of the, the, the original Heat movie. But um, I've, I've segued, so uh, you know. Perfect. It, you do my but... you do my job for me, man. So that's <laughs> but but you were a fan as well, weren't you? I, I know. Yeah, yeah, I really liked it. I did have some criticisms, which you know, when you're interviewing an author or a director, you you kind of. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm never going to give people criticisms unless they ask for them. It's just doesn't, it's not like, uh, right. not like, so there were a couple of things that I, um, but they were relatively minor. And I think I, I had the same thing as you that it, I, I just, I just wanted to steam through it. And I was listening to it on audio, uh, audible. So, Thanks. 
so it was that thing of like um uh sort of deciding to go for long walks and it's okay i'll go to the supermarket i'll go to yes, shopping you know exactly. i want to i want to more walks than he's ever got in the past <laughs> <laughs> and the guy who did pacino was amazing oh, i mean so well, it's the same guy but when he did pacino how do you like that he really did pacino oh great big ass <laughs> So I've got that southern, slightly New Orleans, Louisiana feel to him. That, uh, yeah, but even Pacino when he was doing like subtle him. accents, like Anna has a very specific kind of um, international school. Oh, there's the international school thing. Um, <laughs> international school, you know, raised in, in uh, you know, sort of educated in London or... Yeah, the LSC and yeah. But, but it was obviously the Al Pacino impression that was so good, but he wasn't doing an impression of Al Pacino. He was like you know, just kind of channeling Pacino in a really good way. So I thought it was... And it was the way, it's the way they got, I mean, they got his voice. They obviously, you know, uh, you know, with um, uh, Michael Mann writing the script as well, you've, you've, he, he's going to know how to write for, for Pacino and going to know how to write that character. Yeah. But, but it, it felt like Meg had, had really was owning those characters and that, yeah. you know, when he walks in the room and... You know, he's putting people off with his sort of like uh, a little bit of the Gene Hackman thing from the French Connection of, you know, have you ever picked your feet in Poughkeepsie? Yeah. It's that sort of like, what do you do? What do you know? (laughs) (laughs) What do you hear? What do you say? Yeah, that's a a Cagney thing, isn't it? Which I thought was very on brand as well for for Vincent Hannah. There's a couple of lovely little... I probably didn't get them all, but it, but it it did feel like there was a couple of nice little Easter eggs in there, which I which which sort of made me chuckle. But um, I mean, just that uh, that that combination of you know Michael Mann's kind of well, his whole thing, his whole sort of personality, and and the, you know his background and everything, and uh, and meeting Meg's much sort of you know softer side and, and let's face it i mean there are some great female characters in heat but it's such a it, it's such a masculine world and it's such a masculine movie that i wasn't um prejudiced against you know this is what i was actually like celebrating in a way the fact that there was a woman who was kind of steering some of the uh, um you know some of these characters as well because it just added a it didn't add a, anything sort of softer necessarily to it but it just gave a different dimension to the characters i think you know but particularly exp- uh, bringing out some of their vulnerabilities which may have been there in the backstory of the characters that michael knew but ne- weren't necessarily on the screen because it's such a tough, they're, they're such sort of tough sons of bitches, you know, and, and obviously it's the women who bring out the softness in those characters in that movie and also in the novel. And um, I mean, I was less taken with some of the Paraguayan stuff. I wasn't really into the the, the developments of, of, um, of Chris's life as Jeff Bergman and, you know, that new relationship and that whole business thing. I, I, I was like, I sort of could have done without that whole thing. And then maybe some of the contrivances that get him where he needs to be for the final act without any spoilers. Um, it was, that was all a little bit too much, but the fact that I was as invested in the characters that were invented for this novel, um, as I was in the ones that I knew from the movie, that, that kind of says a lot. And I'll be honest with you, this is the weirdest thing. Um, I didn't think until I listened, until I finished the novel and I listened to your interview with, with Meg, I didn't think of this ever being on screen. Mm. That's so mad, isn't it? Mm. The, the, mm. Surely the first thing you should think of is, oh, I wonder if they'll ever make this into a film. But I wasn't. And, and then I thought, oh, my God, yeah, actually, I suppose you could. You don't have Val Kilmer and you don't have, you know, this, that and the other. But I, I, I think this is a I think this is a calling card. I think this is a, this is a, a relatively cheap way of working through a script in public. Um, you, it pays for itself because you sell the book, so it's already it's already paid its own sort of development yeah. money. Um, and then you have and then you also have an audience. You already you already have I you know IP recognition. 
from the previous film, but you also have an audience that are like, want to see this particular story, not just, yeah. I want to see these characters come back. I want to see this actual story. Yeah. Um, and there are some very, very, I mean, it's, it's not criticism at all, but some very obvious kind of set pieces that you think, wow. I mean, especially towards the end and uh, you know, um, there, there's a scene which I could just, I can just picture how exactly how Michael a Michael Mann version of the film would look. And there's a, there's a scene in Mexico. There's I mean there's a shit there's a shit ton of scenes where you're just yeah. going. I I would love to see this. And um, you know there's a scene relatively early on, just so we don't don't get too spoilery, where uh, um, Vincent Hanna is is staking is, is on the trail of a of the home invasion crew. And they kind of stalk, uh, stake them out in a house and ambush them essentially. And that scene is just so well written in terms of the that I can see exactly what is going on, what the geography is, what the you know, and it's as exciting as as watching it on on a on a in a film. You know, it's it's yeah. I'm really in there with the drama and stuff. And and um, when I think about it, I don't think about it as I, I picture it as though I have seen a film. And honestly, I don't do that with with novels that I've read. There's there's something, and and I if people said, oh, that novel is like very cinematic or whatever, people say that about like I don't know Stephen King's The Stand or whatever. And I'm like, mm. I can't I can't picture it, you know. But this one, without even the 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 visual reference, I don't think I'm really referencing Pacino's Hannah um, that much, even with the voice in the audiobook. You know, <laughs> it's more that it's just as you say, it's so. Um, it's sort of cinematically blocked, you, mm. geographically precise. You know where everything is. Like the 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 scene with um, on the 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 I don't know if it's the PCH. I can't, I can't remember where, where it is, but but on the on the mountain road or whatever. No, it's not. Uh, but but you know it's on that sort of highway. And there's a scene that takes place where he just wants to go up and radio and and can't quite you know manage that. But that, again, when I picture it now, I'm picturing the geography of how the mountain range and how the car and how everything is sort of placed on the, it's just amazing. So yeah. a credit to, to Meg and, and to Michael, I guess, for having that story sort of rolling around. It didn't feel like it was that, you know, there's a lot of killer, not much filler. And even the filler I kind of get, I just wasn't that invested in that particular storyline but which you know ironically is 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 one of is, is the storyline of the main sort of surviving character you know years after the from the original crew you know yeah yeah I, when i asked meg about that in the in the previous uh previous podcast i it was uh, i i felt i maybe i'd put it a little bit it was in danger of being a slightly backhandedly rude question of saying did you ever wish one of the others had survived <laughs> you know <laughs> you sort of like you, you sort of did ask that didn't you yeah i did i did yeah, but did. Yeah, i was kind of halfway through asking it it was like it's like <laughs> i don't mean to say chris is really boring but um yeah you know um you you, know, you obviously neil is a much more interesting character than chris is and even yeah even Mike with Tom Sizemore's performance in my head. I mean, I think he makes a lot of a, well, probably on paper is a pretty nothing role, you know? Um, but yeah, Chris, Chris doesn't strike me as the guy in the crew who you go, Oh, I really want to find out what happens to him in, in a few years time. Um, yeah. But they sort of, I think she manages to pull it off. I mean, I, it, and I did like the Paraguayan sort of the Chinese, the international, the interzone of this. Well, what what Britain is going to be very soon, uh, sort of like regulation free, feral capitalist. Do what, do what exactly, do what you like, and you know, as long as you don't kill anyone too important, we won't yeah. pay any attention. You know. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to be living in a Michael Mann novel, and and I guess that um, the the fact that that stuff was set um what, how many years was it was it 2000 i think that, that it was like five years after the events yeah. of, of heat wasn't it yeah and 99 so 2000 yeah there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so still quite far, because I think they were talking about the, the handover of Hong Kong, which had happened like in quite recent memory then. So I think it was sort of a, a, around there because that was 1999, obviously. But um, I, th- I think it was 99. But um uh, so it's still in the past, you know, we haven't jumped forward that much. And um, I guess, you know, I understand the, the the reason why you were thinking that, but obviously they very much are able to have their cake and eat it because they, they can have a, a side story with Neil and the crew on another kind of, and yet it all plays into the story of this very big bad who is, you know, one of the most evil characters that I've, it, I've read about in a thriller for some time, you know. Just... He's pretty horrible. I mean, he's ah, he, is, he is a little bit, I mean, this would be one of my, again, sort of mild criticisms, is he, he feels a little bit like a replay of the character in Heat, in the, you know, the, the character in Heat who's kind of the... The, the person who Neil goes back to shoot in the end, you know, I'm, I'm talking to a dead man on the telephone, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it has a similar sort of penchant for, for beating up and killing women and, um, and misogyny. And it's, I mean, that that to me feels a little bit like a treat, cheap trick. It's a little bit like the Silence of the Lambs. You know, here, here's a villain that you can hate and here's a villain you can love, you know. Mm. And... Um, it's it's it sort of sidesteps your moral qualms about you know about liking Neil, even though he shoots people, unarmed men, in the very first scene of the movie. You know, but at least yeah. he doesn't beat up women. He's got a code. You know, right, right, right. I think we've we've come on a, a, a ways since those kind of conversations almost didn't take place except perhaps among you know in in sort of criticism almost mm. and sort of film analysis it's like you, you didn't delve too deeply into those things but i think television has really done a a, a great job of making us look at you know, from all sides, the, the 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 nuances of of kind of heroes and anti-heroes and villains or whatever. It's like, I guess, in the late, you know, not from from 1999, I think when again, you know, when um, the Sopranos started, it's like every time you you started to love Tony just a little bit too much, he would do something incredibly despicable to mm. remind you that he's the bad guy. You know, he's not the guy that you're supposed to be rooting for. And then when you get, you sort of fall under the spell of someone like, let's say, you know, Kim Wexler in in not even Saul Goodman himself or Jimmy McGill or whatever. When you fall under Kim Wexler's spell and think like, oh, you know, I hope this, everything's all right at home and everything with these two because they're, you know. And then you just realise, oh, my God, wait a second. what What's happened to my moral compass? <laughs> despicable, despicable people. You know, like watching Seinfeld and laughing at everyone and forgetting that these are like literally the worst people. <laughs> I want to hang out with these terrible, terrible people. But I think, you know, Michael Mann comes from a time when when it was sort of all right to have um, a character like that, that, that you that, that is that evil, like the Scorp- like Scorpio in, in Dirty Harry or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't have to be anything redeeming, but I think we've moved on a little bit. So it would have been nice to give him some sort of nuance. You're right. I mean, I mean, to go back to what you were saying about Michael Mann right at the beginning, I think it's almost like he reminds me of one of those studios. There used to be a, a director. I was reading about him in the sort of noir book, and he basically ha- had this small studio and he had a pile of scripts. And what he would do, he would g- give a director or a writer the, the, 
he had 10 scripts and he'd give them it and he'd say, okay, the last time we filmed this, we filmed it as a Western, go away and do it as a gangster movie and then take the other script and write, okay, last time we did this as a gangster movie, go and do a science fiction version of this. Right. <laughs> and they just had the same 10 scripts, but they just changed the setting and the names of the characters and they'd do it again, you know? Um, <laughs> and I think Michael Mann is that kind of filmmaker where he is he doesn't really have a very broad range of interests. He, he he can in the details, he can get really into the details, but in terms of like the excuse for getting interested in Ferrari or for getting into, you know, you know, interested in, I mean, his most sort of abnormal film, if you like, is the insider and possibly his best film as well. But it's got exactly the same concerns. It's still about masculine men and the men that they're masculine around the men who are being masculine <laughs> and have to make hard decisions that the women around them, you know, can support or can buckle under or can, you know, but the men yeah. will, in the end, the men will be the men, you know? Um, and I, 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 I sort of see that as his a very defined sort of thing that he does. And you kind of, it's kind of like either you you're on into it or you're not, or you you're on board or you're not. Um, That's why I think of him in, in the same way that I think of like a John Houston or, or a John Milius or somebody like that, that he's just like that guy yeah. and you can't put, but I forget sometimes that he's not from, you know, the same period as, as John Houston, but he's got those same kind of, that that same kind of interest in masculinity about, about him. It's um, in his it's in his goddamn name. <laughs> it's yeah, my, it's yeah, Michael yeah. Mann. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. and he, he is the absolute apotheosis of that because it's the you know it's the 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 one where where you, I mean the women the female characters in Heat are basically you know women who are who are desperately trying to leave the men basically trying to survive the men they might love them they might have but they, they they know the men are not interested in them they know the men are not they're never going to be the center of their lives or or even or even allow be allowed to express themselves in any meaningful way so i mean but it still I, gets me every time at the end of heat that he goes after the 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 guy that he's got to go after because I forget that the inevitability of that is nothing to do with what the audience wants. It's everything to do with Neil Macaulay and who he is and what he can and cannot allow to happen. And we've he's been telling us who he is when he says never, you know. But so why am I under the spell and and forget for a long time thinking that he's going to drive away and get away and all of that? And of course he can't. Of course, I'm the fool for thinking that he ever could step away from that and leave that gestalt kind of unresolved. Yeah, but, and it's but Michael so Mann would disagree with you. Off the road. Michael Mann would disagree with you because he would say that's his, his downfall is that he leaves his code in that as a professional, he shouldn't give a shit about this guy. He should, he's done his job, he's got his money, out you go and just leave it, don't care about it. And it's actually that, that hate, that's a hatred that he's feeling has nothing right. to do with the job. It's nothing to do with the code. He should be on the plane. He's made his money, make his escape. Oh, but I it, see. It, yeah. it pulls him back like an elastic band, you know, and he can't, yeah. he, he, that's his failing. Um, and I mean, on the other side of it, which I think is a very funny sort of flip to the, uh, uh, is is the sort of Natalie Portman scene where where Al, well, it's not very funny, but Al Pacino saved her from suicide and goes into the hospital, and it's, suddenly you get this real world of there's other shit going on in this in these people's lives, and not being attentive, you know, not you know, being Jim Rockford is fine, but it's actually going to, you're going to have a price to pay and other people are going to get hurt. And the bit where his wife just says, you know, and there's a sort of reconciliation and then his pager goes and his wife just goes, hi, <laughs> off you go. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, the level of sort of emotional maturity in that scene is like there's, and you know, there's no way he's going to go. No, fuck that guy. Yeah. I've got, I, I don't need to go after him. And it's like, 
you sure you're gonna be okay? You know, as, yes. as he's already getting his car keys out. Oh no, I'm God. gonna, I'm gonna stay with you. You know, it's, yeah. You got your car keys in your hand, Vincent. That's quite rare because often you'll see the scene where you, where it's, it makes no sense. It's like when two people who know some something that's happening are talking about it together and they're naming like all of it. Whereas mm. actually you don't need to do the foundation for, because if, if the audience isn't there. So the writing that feels real is that kind of thing, not the, oh, my God, could just once you put your family for. Obviously, that doesn't, you know, it now goes without that saying because they've been married that long that it, it that it does. It's all unsaid, isn't it? It's just, yeah. you know, it's just there. She knows what he's like and he knows what he's like and nothing's ever going to change that dynamic so and i suppose in the book there is a sort of you're you're in heat two you're getting like how did neil become neil how did neil become the neil of the of the film did you did you find that satisfactory did you find did you did you like that part of the of the book yeah i did i mean i i was i, I liked the fact that it was sort of jumping around in in time more than i thought i would you know at first i was like mm. oh right see what, the, what what's going on here and and i did occasionally sort of get a little bit lost with my with with where i was in the timeline um even though they kind of you know i shouldn't because they make it very clear but um yeah i mean i'm not a big backstory guy i don't need to know how these people arrived at, at, at this place when it's a fully rounded character i i do i don't i'm not one of those people who thinks it's always reductive do you feel a little bit like that that all all you know past is prologue and and therefore can be excised and you don't really need that stuff you you're, you're um, in the moment yeah, i i i i wish there were stories i mean i mean it's the common complaint these days of things like star wars it's like you know the, the whole point of luke skywalker is he's a nobody in the middle of nowhere and he's bored and mm. and to by the time you get to the umpteenth tv show it's like no actually ben kenobi isn't this old guy who's just sitting on his own for 20 30 40 50 years he's actually all the time he's hopping around doing other stuff and having adventures before that that to me really lessens the power of the original and it takes away yeah. from it um it's not so much that there isn't the point the problem is as a story to be interesting has to be extraordinary and if you're putting it in a universe in which stories are constantly happening then that's no longer really narrative it's it's soap opera you know i mean mm. the east enders never stops and there's something there's a week in which nothing happens that's dramatic you know it has a you know People don't fall in love or find out that someone's having an affair or somebody's stolen some money or someone's, you know, having a problem with drink or gambling or something. That that, that has to be happening all the time for the soap opera to, and that's what makes soap operas so, you know, perfectly unsatisfactory is that you're never going to, there's never going to be a resolution. There's always going to be something mm -hmm. else. Um but that's kind of, that's not how, that's not what, that's a different thing we go to. So, I mean, the problems I have with, any small problems I have with Heat 2 would be sort of things like, um, you know, did they have to be in the same city in Chicago at the same time? Mm -hmm. And that sort of, which, you know, Meg explains and says, oh, it's fun to have them almost meeting and sort of teasing that. And you could imagine yeah. in the film sort of having a car pull up just as the other car leaves and think, oh, they almost, yeah. you know. But to me, <laughs> it sort of, it kind of, it not, doesn't cheapen it. That That's a lesser version. That's something that doesn't uh, worry me too much. But if it had been done a bit, if it had been done, it could have been terrible. Put it that way. It could that could that mm. could have been a problem, and and in the end, it wasn't. Um, and as far as Neil is concerned, I actually think his backstory works, probably because of the process uh, that that Michael Mann went through, where he actually wrote these biographies for the first film. Exactly. And, get, and gave them to the actors. So there was nothing 
which was retrofitted. There was nothing that, oh, he was actually originally a political activist. Mm-hmm. And he, he worked, you know, with Martin Luther King when he was a young man. And then he got, you know, there was nothing that was, that didn't fit with what you already yeah. knew. And that was, and that was, I thought that was good, you know. Yeah, he wasn't having to sit down and reinvent him from whole cloth, but now fill in all the blanks, you know, yeah. like I, I don't really need to know where, you know, Doc Brown came from. And if they, if Disney Plus launched a young Doc Brown series about how he got interested in something, you know, I wouldn't give a shit, even though he's like one of my favorite sort of characters from one of my favorite movies or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, I find that stuff reductive, but not to the point where I'm, I want to gatekeep what they can and can't do like some people do. But, you know, no, it- you won't give me young Neil Macaulay because I don't want to know how he got to that place you know well and and in this book you you kind of don't get young neil mccauley he's he's already running you know he's having he's in the middle of a long career you know and that's kind of refreshing for a heist because the heist cliche is is actually heat one which is the one last job and then i'm out of here one big score and then i'm done um and in heat two he's actually doing one more score and then another score. And then I'm going to actually, I'm in the middle of my career. I'm just going to keep doing them for as long as I want. And so that actually makes it sort of less of a cliche. And it's not, we're not meeting Neil in prison and we're not meeting Neil as a young man under the wing of an older guy. And, and no, the thing you have to do, Neil. Yeah. 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 He's fully formed as, as Neil McCauley or uh, that we know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You don't see him. He does seem as a child being dropped by his mother in a hot tub of water and and, and her going, oh, I'm sorry, baby. It's the heat. It's the heat that hurt you. And everybody turning to the camera. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And this is what's great. I mean, just to sort of, you know, maybe wrap it up a little bit, there is a great thing about this which every time one of these works it makes you less it makes you more open and less cynical to the next one of these you know which is why because some of our favorite films are remakes Mm. you know we have to be open to the idea and because we've seen great belated sequels and now you know we've we've had um that a, a rare thing which is a you know a a much belated novel sequel to a much loved film and it works it's I, i'll be more open to the next one and and obviously i'll you know i'm going to be disappointed more often than i'm going to be pleasantly surprised but this one was beyond the pleasant surprise it was like it's you know really um captured everything that was that was great about heat somehow with the one thing I thought you couldn't put on the page, which is Michael Mann, you know, the, yeah. the, what he brings to the the screen, that incredible cinematic, you know, visionary mind that he has to make even a story as sort of small as two guys riding around in a car feel somehow as giant as Last of the Mohicans. He said he wanted to do like a small movie that was a lot, you know, after mm. Last of the Mohicans, what have you didn't want to do something as daunting as the aviator, but so, so he chose collateral instead. And yeah, he makes collateral feel huge because the backdrop that it takes place against is huge, I guess, but, and the characters are larger than life, you know, just incredible. But um, I thought that would be a deal breaker, the absence of the visuals. And mm. yet, no, they're, they're there. Well, here's an interesting last question for you. We've had, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novel, the novelization, if you like, which was much bigger than the film in terms of its scope and everything. We've had Heat now, which, 2. Which I loved tremendously as Abs- well. Me too, Absol- absolutely. We've had Heat 2. Um, I'm not sure if we've had any any more of these sort of like, you know, we obviously we've got had film directors write books before. Ilya Kazan did America, America, and, you know, it's been done. But this could this be a, a who would you like to see next write a, a novel which film director would you would you say oh i'd love to see such and such you know put out their novel version of an, a film or a sequel to one of their films or 
Yeah, oh, could, gosh. Just, yeah. I've just thought of one, actually, as yeah. I asked that. Oh, go on. Tell me yours, and then I'll see if I can think of one. I'd love to see um, uh, David Lynch do uh, write a novel version of his sort of Ronnie Rockets screenplay. Oh, right. Okay. And that would be a... Uh, oh, I don't any- love that. I don't love that script. The script. Honest, but I'd love to read a novel by David Lynch. Yeah, that would be... That would be something. I mean, we did have like, you know, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer written by mm. Jennifer Lynch. And we we had Mark Frost do his kind of, you know, Twin Peaks backstory things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it would be interesting to see. Jennifer what, Lynch, what who, who's directing the Dharma as well. It's just in an episode that she did of Dharma on Netflix. Right. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. She's kind of interesting, interesting director. Um, oh, gosh. What was the film that she made with, um, was it Bill Pullman? Oh, Boxing ever... Helena. No, um, no, I, I, it was much later. Oh, I'd have to, look, I have to look that one up. You can, you can cut that part out. Um, I don't know. I mean, that nothing comes to mind. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm, would be crying out for a, a follow up to a film that you know that I love that hasn't that that I hasn't that hasn't been done. But the trick that I think that was missed like big time was um, any kind of follow-up to, to Sneakers, which is just such a perfect movie. The Phil Alden Robinson, it had an amazing ensemble. And those guys together, the incredible chemistry that those characters had. I mean, the, the you know, characters played by um, uh, David Strathairn, River Phoenix, Sidney Poitier, Dan Aykroyd, I mean, Mary McDonnell, everyone as great as the next, you know, obviously Robert Redford. Um, this It's such a perfect ensemble that it breaks my heart that 30 years on, there still hasn't been any more sneakers. And if there was a guy like the guy, I, I, I'm not a, a huge fan of the Fletch movies, but I know they have their fans. But if there was a guy who'd written like, like when you find out there's like, I don't know how many Forrest Gump books there are, but there's like a bunch of them, you know. Um, <laughs> if there was, Forrest if Gump out, goes to Africa. <laughs> if I found out that Phil Alden Robinson was planning to sort of, you know, live out his twilight years writing sneakers sequels, oh my God, you know, I would just eat those up. I wouldn't necessarily need to see them made as films, but just that would be, that would be the thing that I would I would do if I could. That would be the parallel universe that I would live in. But, you'd like but then to live in the universe, they might have made a fourth Back to the Future film. And, and then obviously I'd have to destroy uh, the universe that I lived in. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'll stick with the universe I've got if I, if I even if I can't have uh, follow up sneakers movies or, you know, a sneakers TV series, just the best ensemble, you know. I've, I've, I've never seen sneakers. Oh my gosh! Okay, that's two Blu-rays I've got to send you then. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are. They, they, if you have a if you have a Region B player, you'll be you'll be fine as long as you've got you've got a European player. So yeah, 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 good. yeah. That one we had to license properly, but yeah, I love it so much. It's not. I'm not plugging it for the for Plumeria. I promise you. Oh, oh, plug away, plug away. Um, it's just when you mentioned the cast, it was so brilliant that you mentioned it kind of in reverse order of the poster. I could kind of see the the people getting from small to big. And then Red yeah, I studied. Um, I studied Heat with Tom Noonan and worked my <laughs> yeah. way up to Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. I was thinking, who's what's Tom Noonan in Heat? <laughs> I remember the guy from The Simpsons. I remember Apu, yeah. the voice of Apu from The Simpsons. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Hank Azaria, yeah. and of course John Voight in Heat when he was. Uh, when he was still sort of like, well, before his his sort of politics were more famous, I think his politics was, were already swinging well well right at that point. Yeah, he yeah, wasn't, yeah. Uh, and he's he, he's phenomenal in that as well as Nate. Brilliant, David. That's well, that's absolutely absolutely great. So so he oh, and too- and surveillance was the word, or surveillance was the was the Jennifer Lynch movie I'm thinking of with ah. was Bill Pullman and Linda Fiorentino. I want to say, yeah, that sounds right. That's that. Linda Fiorentino had sort of one of those strange careers where she was really huge with the last redu- the last seduction, mm. and then she did a few films, but never quite sort of like. Uh, I don't know. I mean, kind of. I, I I imagine had a very long career afterwards as well, but didn't have a sort of that leading. 
you know, she didn't break up into the Sharon Stone territory or the, mm. you know, or the, the the real sort of we can open a movie with this person's territory. Yeah, I mean, she she withdrew for 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 reasons which weren't necessarily as clear then as they might be now looking back. Ah, right. Okay. And I email her regularly through her website, lindafiorentino.com, I think, trying to say when you do an interview you know, and, and look back on that career because she did have an amazing, you know, she was one, I mean, she was one of the, not to go too too far down the rabbit hole, but let's just say she was one of the actors who was potentially labelled as being difficult because she wouldn't necessarily play the game that, uh, you know, uh, that some would. And we thought of it at the time very differently than we might do looking at it through a Me Too lens right let's say right and i think that's part of the story there so um but but uh, you know I've, I've no proof of that other than my own sort of gut feeling and the way that things sort of went down and also facing my own prejudices about you know actors who were labeled difficult you know and right and looking at the, the reasons why those might have occurred so i think there's probably an interesting chapter of an interesting book which you know somebody will hopefully write at some point which will be looking at the at the careers of people who kind of opted out of the system and and hopefully those people will sort of track um you know that person whoever it's me oh god i hope it's not going to be me hope someone else does the work <laughs> so i don't have i want to go and write another book about movies that never got made you know and, and hope Heat two isn't in it, and <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted, yeah, I wanted someone to do that with my Twilight Zone book. Uh, so I, I keep, I, I want someone to get lawyered up and do that. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's that's got to be, that's got to be a great book if you can, if you can do it. What, what's your Twilight Zone book? Well, Twilight Zone the movie, the you know, um, oh the, yeah, you're the, right. the making of. I just that story. Uh, there's been some good sort of documentaries and in turn not documentaries but sort of like um episodes of sort of movies from hell sort of thing yeah yeah but, yeah. but it, i think it could either be a feature film documentary or one of those netflix sort of four-parters or something like that but it would just be such a, a legal quagmire but i think it's yeah. there it's so many people are responsible for that for that going wrong that never really uh who never really got blamed properly. And the, the, the people like the helicopter pilots sort of uh, all ended up killing themselves because they were so guilt-ridden and they, they got all the opprobrium sort of thrown on them. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And I, I think it's one of those things where the um, the more, like you, you know, I have delved quite deeply into that. And the more that you, that you delve into it, the murkier it gets and the more people you love it touches and you know it becomes very hard to separate the the artist from the from the horror show that that sort of became and who enabled co-signed it and and were sort of accessories after the fact in a way in 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 you know covering all all up and what have you and it's all very much you know part of the course it's, it's what hollywood's been doing since hollywood was invented yeah absolutely you know? But it's just that it's people from that generation of heroes that that makes it hurt all the more, and and yeah, pr pretty pretty crazy. So um, yeah, I hope I don't have to write that one, but you absolutely should. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, David. Thanks so much for joining me again. And uh, and but just uh, yeah, plug your plug your DVD thing. Tell us tell us about that quickly so uh, people can find where oh, can yeah. people find so, that. Yeah, so Plumeria picks P I C S uk plumeria spelled like the like the flower p-l-u-m-e-r-i-a pics.co.uk basically we i started my podcast which is an audio commentary podcast because i was afraid that um the the audio commentary was going to die along with the, the dvd you know the, mm. particularly the sort of studio um commentaries and one of the first episodes we did was an was an episode with the director and producer of a peter capaldi film i love called soft top hard shoulder and um, after they'd recorded the commentary, I realized that there was no actual edition of Soft Top Hard Shoulder out anywhere in the world. So I kind of got the rights off the producer, put out a, like a, this is a, like a lockdown project, put out a nice sort of slipcase Blu-ray, learned how to do it. And then thought, you know, when that was all right, I thought, oh, I'm going to do a 
few more of these. So I collaborated with Simon Brewer Film Stories on a special edition of Sneakers, where we actually actually pony up the money for the license, you know. Mm. Got a lovely interview with Phil Alden Robinson for the Blu-ray. And now we sort of got our next, we, we did Maze, Mazes and Monsters, just came out last Monday, uh, 40th anniversary edition with a lovely um, uh, cover by Phil, um, oh, the great cover artist, I've completely forgotten his name now. Um, uh, sorry about that. But um, uh, And then we're doing another title, which I think will be out before the end of the year, but I can't actually announce yet. But um, yeah, so I've got this little boutique blu-ray business and looking for rights for films and obviously there's massive competition in that area at the moment so we're all fighting over the rights for the for the same films and and uh, which is quite fun so yeah you've got to sort of snap up the the good ideas for because there's a lot of um you know there's arrow and screen factory shout factory eureka indicator powerhouse all these guys they're all sort of fighting over the spoils of the movies we loved as you know, when we were younger and, and stuff. And, and yeah, so um, you've got but, to get, yeah, we've got a couple of other. You've got to get the big bus, get the big bus. That's a, that's a great, I'm not sure if that's. Oh, is out. that not, there isn't I'm a Blu-ray of that. I'm not sure if it's available, you know, I'm not sure if it's available. I'll oh. have to look into that. Oh. Yeah. That's a sort Anyway, of... so plumeriapix.co.uk. And uh, yeah, but we try and do them region free if we can. Mazes and Monsters is region free. It's not always possible because of the licensing arrangements. Right. Um, but um, uh, we do sort of ship worldwide and it's free UK postage. And uh, yeah, so I'll send you a couple of copies and um, hopefully you'll get to finally see Sneakers. And then um, you can get Phil Alden Robinson and persuade him to write Sneakers 2, a novel, holding up Heat 2 as the perfect absolutely (laughs) the perfect persuasion absolutely absolutely i'm right on that i've got his email i'll be sending him good chatting with you john (laughs) lovely talking to you david take care thanks for having me on best of luck cheers Bye. bye So that was my conversation with David. We had a really good time talking. As you can tell, just enjoy chatting with David any time. And frankly, this podcast is just an excuse to uh, fulfill, to scratch that itch, so to speak. That, that War of the Worlds, David Essex quoting itch that sometimes comes over me. So um, uh, remember, if you enjoyed the episode, to like, subscribe, leave a review, spread the word as far and wide as possible. But... Um, all that remains to me to do is to thank Ellie Atkins for the music, Ellie Howard for the artwork, and thank you, listener, for tuning in. And we'll talk next week. Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.